Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversations, bringing you helpful strategies and practical resources to help you invest on and off the farm. If you find value today, don't hesitate to leave us an honest review and share the episode. Yes, this helps us, but more importantly, it could help someone else along their journey. Now, let's dive in without further ado. If you don't put any fertilizer out in the field, you're probably not going to get zero yield. You're going to get some yield. And, and so recognizing that the soil itself is providing some of the nutrition that those crops need is, is really important. Um, you don't, you don't, all the organisms that person needs in order to make as much nitrogen as, as is possible with the kind of soil you have is already in the field already. What, what a person needs to do is need to nurture that and leave it alone as much as possible. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. Today, we are joined by the Dave Franzen. He is North Dakota State's University Extension Soil Specialist, and he has unconventional wisdom into, into all things soil health in the world of agriculture. And I'm excited to dig into why he thinks no-till is so critical for improving soil health today. Dave, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Casey. Good to be here. So what made North Dakota State University say, we got to get Dave working for us? Well, it, uh, it, it really came with my, uh, my farmer face-to-face and my industry background, apparently, from what people on the hiring committee uh, told me. I'm, I'm a suburban Chicago kid, came out of um, high school wanting to be a chemical engineer, and if we have time, I'll go into that just a little bit. But I went to Illinois, which is one of the top uh, three chemistry universities in the country. Uh, and um, after a semester or so, I just couldn't imagine myself in a white coat running around all the time. So, uh, but I still enjoyed chemistry, but I really just didn't know what to do. Just kind of threw my hands up. And right at that time, it was right when the EPA had just been inaugurated, instituted, and and Illinois has uh, has and still has forestry department and. Up to that time, there were about 10 incoming freshmen or so every year. And there's a national forest at the southern end of Illinois, if anybody, it's a best-kept secret. But but anyway, so that's usually where the people would end up. And But then all of a sudden, everybody that liked uh, furry, feathery, um, ecology-minded things didn't have anywhere else to go. Uh, and then they, they, they looked at the forestry program and said, hey, I think... I think maybe I'll give that a shot. So they were inundated with about a hundred incoming freshmen, and they didn't know what to do. So they just they opened it up and they and they said, okay, so you can take two core courses at uh, on campus, and then go to our uh, a summer camp uh, for another eight credits up in started out in northern Wisconsin, and then ended up in Ely, Minnesota, which isn't that far away from where I am right now. And uh, and and from there you can take whatever you want, and it'll be it'll, it'll apply toward your major. And I thought this is it. And, and so I also had a friend that didn't know what they were going to do. They ended up in microbiology. I ended up in soils. I went into a as part of it. There was a uh, what a required class. I think it might have been agronomy. 
and it had a soil pit in it. And I got down in the pit and I saw physics and biology and chemistry and math and everything all on the same pit. And I said, this is it. So, so that's, I took every soils course that Illinois could possibly have. I worked for Fred Welch, who was a soil fertility person in the soil department at the time, uh, in my senior year to make money for my last uh, year of, of college. Uh, he liked my work, apparently. I, I did a lot of field work for him and, and kept his books and stuff. And he offered me a master's, and I, I, I took it. And then when I got out, I worked for industry for about 18 years at a, at a place just 18 miles north of University of Illinois. Got a got a chance to go back and get my PhD. Made a deal with my boss who wanted his son to come in and run the business, and that didn't work out. But my PhD did, so I worked forty hours a week, and and I went to school and went to, to the library until it closed. And my wife was a widow for like four years, and in the <laughs> In the meantime, she had a, you know, we had a, we had a baby and she was almost a single mom there for a while. So it was, it was, she was long suffering. I don't know why she stuck with it, but she did. So four years I was over and my boss was going to sell the place and this uh, job at North Dakota State came up and I took it and, and they, they liked the idea that I work with farmers all the time, which I did. And I had a very diverse uh, bunch of, skills that I developed while I was an agronomist and manager in those fertilizer plants and and they liked the idea that I had the industry connection and so here I am. So I started June thirteenth, nineteen ninety four, which is weird because I, I have a hard time figuring out if my anniversary is May twenty fourth or May twenty fifth. But I know for a fact that I started my job June thirteenth, nineteen ninety four. So so I it's it's uh, that's that's strange, but but that's that's when I started. So I've been here almost thirty years. That's wild. So you've popped around a little bit for sure. Well, that's a long, long time to be in soil. You must really love it. it I, I do. It's all the, and especially the part of part of soils that I'm in, soil fertility. It's a. You have to know a lot about crop growth, plant growth. You have to know a lot about that. You need to know something about microbiology. You need to know a fair amount about math and um, and a lot about chemistry and uh, some physics along the way. Uh, it's just all the sciences rolled into one, and it's a very applied science, extremely applied. And uh, I get a chance to, to talk to farmers. I've done hundreds, hundreds of field trials out in farmer fields from one end of the state to the other, and even into Montana and Minnesota on occasion. Um, and I just uh, really like it. It's really hard. My my final day here is going to be August second, two thousand twenty-four, and and I'm looking forward to it in a way, but I'm going to miss it. I've, I've already missed the field work. I've had to stop it because if you did field work, you'd have to finish it up, and I'd be retired, and then it wouldn't be finished up. And I like to finish things. So, uh, yeah, I already missed that, but I, I'm helping the young people in our department out. I'm mentoring them, and and I, I think we've got a real strong group that's that's coming on, and and uh, I, I think the future looks bright here at the university. That's awesome. So you're saying that fertility is your main specialty when, in terms of soil 
how it's an applied science. And I, I love that you're also working directly with, with farmers being this bridge between the educational institution and on the field, in the field with the farmers. What is, can you walk us through what that typical relationship or process looks like on it, you know, on a year? Like what, what's a typical. Well, yeah, yeah, there isn't anything typical about it, but, but there's a, there's a strong relationship with uh, soil fertility and soil health. And, and I'll, and I'll tell you my, my, my first, my first exposure to that was the, the, the first winter I went through in North Dakota. And uh, it was also the coldest, coldest winter I'd been through in North Dakota. It was the winter of 94, 95. And uh, there was an association at the time. It was called the Manitoba North Dakota Zero Till Conference. It disbanded about 10 years ago because there's other, other ways for people to get information now, but, but there wasn't back then. And it had been going for, gosh, I don't know, at least a decade before then. They invited me out to speak because I was new. They wanted to meet me. I certainly wanted to meet them. And so I was in Minot, and I remember the day for two reasons. One is because the next morning, it was the coldest morning I've ever been in North Dakota. I woke up in the morning. It was 45 below, and that's not wind chill. That was the temperature. And so it was 45 below the next morning. But I also remember it, more importantly, because they invited me upstairs to a, what, quote-unquote, smoker in yeah, people smoked back then. And um, so anyway, but the big thing was that I got to got to meet the original no-tillers in the region. There were, there were farmers from Alberta, Saskatchewan, North Dakota, certainly Montana, some from South Dakota. And uh, they were excited to see me. But in the course of conversation, they also told me that they didn't follow uh, NDSU, North Dakota State's fertilizer recommendations anymore for nitrogen. And I asked them why. And they said, well, after they've been in no-till for a number of years, they shaved their nitrogen rates and and found that it didn't hurt them. And they kept shaving them. And they've shaved, shaved them all uh, so much that it didn't resemble our recommendations anymore, so they don't pay any attention to them. And some of them have been in there for 20 years. They've been no-tillers already for 20 years. They started in the 70s. And so I just, I, I remembered it. I, I said, okay, I'm not going to argue with them. You know, I didn't tell them that. But I wasn't going to argue with them. I'm from Illinois, corn and soybean guy. You know, what the heck do I know? So so anyway, but then I did quite a bit of work in site-specific nutrient application. And then after I got that kind of nailed down with the zone sampling, then I, I found that the the fertilizer recommendations that were on the books but just didn't just support it at all. They were all meant for just kind of average average rates and you know there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of inaccuracies in them. And and so I I made it a mission. I got support for various commodity groups and things to to do some work on uh, nitrogen rates in in spring wheat and in durum wheat. We grow a lot of durum up here, the spaghetti stuff. Okay. But anyway, I, I did a lot of work with that nitrogen rates all across the state, all corners of the state, and and between that and some archive work, I, I came up with uh, gosh over a hundred sites of of research, and and I was sitting down to make the recommendations, and I remembered what what those people told me back in '95, and and so I divided it out. I I had made notes, of course, of what was not long-term no-till, what was 
conventional till and so I divided them up and they were right that it took about 50 pounds less nitrogen to grow at least the same yield and at least the same protein and protein is important here the farmers get a premium for it most years um, it's a high quality wheat uh, and and so it just took 50 pounds of less nitrogen and so I incorporated it into the into the recommendations as far as I know it's still the only set of recommendations that have a long-term no-till nitrogen credit, and I have no idea why, because I've tested it in corn. When I went back in and did the work for corn, 120, 130 different site years of work in corn, and I found the same thing. And then I had, what, 30-some sites of sunflowers, no-till and, and conventional, and the same thing, and just lately two-row malting barley, and the same thing. So I see the credit all the time. There's 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 things going on in the soil that are not explained by the soil test. There's I think part of it is that there's more microorganisms in a no-till no-till situation and, and, and I gotta define no-till here. No-till to me is six years continuous of, of either purest no-till where you're just putting the planter on the ground and making the slit and putting the seed in, that's that's no-till. But so is a, a, a strip till with a shank. You know, going in the fall of the year. Some people go in in the spring. You're not touching yeah. the residue except for that little strip. So that that's in the same basket. It performs just exactly the same as the purest. And then uh, in the northwest part of the state, there's a, a something that people people do. It's called uh, shallow one-pass seeding, and, and that's no-till too. Uh, they they leave the stubble. They go in in the spring of the year, and and the only thing they do is they just tickle the top couple inches of it while they're planting, uh, and then that's it. But it performs like no-till too, so that's no-till. Uh, what's not no-till is what a lot of people think is no-till, is going into say soybean stubble and not touching it, and then sucking the corn planter in the ground. But then when you get done with the corn planter, you tear the heck out of the soil with a chisel plow. That's not no-till. You're destroying the biology every other year. I mean, what what the heck? So that's not no-till. I don't know what you would call it. I, to me, anything that's not six years or more continuous with any of those three tools that I just mentioned is uh, what I would call transitional no-till. And it actually takes more nitrogen when you do that. I don't know. So to, for those first five, six years or so, it takes a little bit more nitrogen, about 20 pounds, I, we kind of figured. Uh, because uh, it's it's in between. You, you still have to decompose residue, but you don't have quite the biomass that's doing the recycling that you do a little bit later on in, in time. So what I what I think is happening in, in the credit is that part of it is that microbes um, desire ammonium nitrogen just like crops do. When you put ammonium nitrogen down, not nitrate, they're not they don't really care for nitrate for some reason, but you have an ammonia-based fertilizer, crop residues that are rotting or something like that, the microorganisms will, will eat that up. So if you if you have a long-term no-till, you have a, a greater diversity of types of organisms, and you have a lot more of those in the soil, and so they're taking up a lot more than they do in conventional. Some of that's happening in the conventional system, but a lot less than it's happening in a long-term no-till. they got a great, great smorgasbord out there, and there's a lot lot of food. It's just not a one trip to the table thing. They can keep going back and back and back. So then the second thing um, was an idea I got from another audience. You know, you asked me about the interface between farmers and 
farmers and university. Well, I get a lot of my mm-hmm. ideas from from farmers and people that are in audiences. And so I'm in I'm in Minnesota, across the across the river, and and uh, doing some kind of a soil conservation thing. And and a person piped up and said, "Well, what about asymbiotic nitrogen fixtures? Those are." Those are free-living organisms, usually bacteria that are in the soil, and there's a whole slug of them. And they and they take nitrogen from the air and they uh, make make ammonia with it. You know, they they make nitrogen fixtures. So um, I, I I didn't even think about it. I'd read the literature and I knew that there were maybe five, ten pounds of nitrogen that was. Uh, that was made every year by the activity of these in the, in the in the soil, and so I just told them that, and and then I just went on, and I I didn't think about it for a long time, and then I got to thinking, well, all of those studies were done by by in conventional fields, you know, where they beat the soils to death all the time, and then they measure five or ten pounds. But what mm-hmm. what happens if you just leave it alone, you know? Because my vision was. That the limitation of that is certainly food, because it's a high energy thing to, to take nitrogen from the air and make ammonia. It takes a lot of energy. So where does it come from? You know, if in a conventional system you're pretty limited, in a no-till system there's a lot more around. So maybe that. And then the other thing is, is these these organisms tend to live in these little niches in the in the soil. I mean, if you if you do honey, I shrunk the kids about ten times and get down to about the size of a bacteria, you'll You'll find that you're in a little niche or something like that with a little colony of asymbiotic nitrogen fixtures or who knows what in there that, that kind of you know make a little community. And there's these things all over the place in the soil, Bill, you know, millions and billions of these things. But then you go in with a chisel plow and you you know you kill them all and you can you know if you listen real hard you can hear them scream. But um, so anyway, I went to uh, 13 different places in the state, all over the state, and and I, I'd made, this is what, maybe five, six years ago I did this. So I, I've got to know a lot of people during my time here. And so I, so I called a no-tiller up and I said, do, do you have a clueless neighbor that still is a conventional till person? And, and it was hard to find west of the Missouri River because 98% of everything west of the Missouri River is, is a long-term no-till. But, uh, but I did find places. And so I took a took a sample in the long term no till, and then just right across the road and right across the fence into the into the conventional till. And then I had a colleague down in Florida that could that could run an assay, and and give me at least a qualitative idea of what the how much how much nitrogen fixation is going on by these organisms compared uh, to the to the conventional till and the and the long term no till the the asymbiotic fixation was a lot more, a lot more than in the conventional. So I think that's where the credit comes from. I think as much as maybe a third of the no-till credit comes from our greater activity of asymbiotic organisms just because they have food and housing. So Food and have housing, it's like a mesohierarchy of needs. And it's yeah. also wild to think about, like you've been at this since, you know, around 1994, you've been in the industry and there's still so much more to explore. Just because something's like. written on a book or a circular doesn't mean we know everything. It just means that that's, that's what we know to date. It, it was only maybe seven or eight years ago or so before we, we changed the potassium recommendations to include consideration of clay chemistry. 
Uh, before that, the simplification in the soil fertility books is just amazingly simple. And it's not simple, potassium fertilization. Uh, how it gets into the plant is a very, very complex thing. Lots of physical chemistry. It's, it's, nitrogen is very biological, but potassium is very physical chemistry. Inner layers of clays and interactions and different minerals that are in the soil and the release rates and things that I don't want to say people didn't consider because people considered it. And my colleague Don Sparks from Delaware, he, he wrote about this back in the 80s. But people ignored it because I, I think reading the chapter reminded them of that horrible soil chemistry class that they had, and they didn't want to, they didn't want to consider it with all those equations and stuff. But it, so it just got lost in a book, and uh, but it's uh, really relevant. So Minnesota's working on recommendations based on that, and South Dakota, and we've had recommendations now for about five or six years based on clay chemistry. So you, you just don't know everything. We don't, you know, they would just the old thing. The more you know, the more you don't know. So if you if you tell somebody you know something, they, you're you're a liar. You don't know the whole story. That is really what I found is the only truth. <laughs> a lot of things. The more you know, the more you don't know. I love that saying. The Dave, you mentioned. Um, six years is the time frame in which you consider an operation to be no-till. Is that the transition period that you expect for the soil to be up to the levels that that you look for? Or can you, what does no, the transition period look like? That, that's a, that's a fuzzy number. You know, it's a, it's, there are, what I, what I found here is that, let me see. So, in the very eastern part of North Dakota, uh, there's an area called the Red River Valley. And it's not really a river valley. I mean, it's a river valley in the context that a river runs through it. And it goes up to Winnipeg and up into Hudson Bay. But but originally it was an old glacial lake uh, thousands of years ago. Glacial Lake Agassiz, which doesn't exist anymore. But the sediments, which are, you know, at least here and the closer you get to the river, the sediments are or uh, a lot, lot thicker and they feather out toward the edges. but uh, high clay content, 50% clay, uh, and very heavily smectitic clay, the shrinking swelling stuff. In Fargo, there's there's two types of concrete. I told my son this a little ability. He, he, he bought a house, and he moved a bookcase, and there's this crack in his basement wall, and he's just freaking out. They said, I shouldn't have bought this house. I said, you know, the, there's, there's two kinds of concrete in Fargo. There's concrete that's cracked and concrete that's going to crack. And that's 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 a, that's what's happening because it it shrinks its wells, it it, it freezes its wells, it, it thaws, it shrinks, it gets wet, it it swells, it dries, it it shrinks, and so um, that's that's the kind of clay we have right here. And so so here here in Far, you got the big the high clay stuff going on, and then as you um, exit the valley and go west about thirty miles. There's some gently undulating, undulating ridges around, and they tend to be very sandy. And those were the old beaches where the lake used to be thousands of years ago. And, and that takes a little bit different management. And then you get it out into the till plain. We don't have loss like they do in the I-States, like they do in lots of Iowa and certainly almost all of Illinois. And then in the Indiana, 
we don't have that lost cover, so we just have this naked glacial till just staring us in the face all the time. So within a within a within a, any given field, once you get out in the till plane, there's there's all this incredible variability. You might go from a clay to a to a sand in the same quarter section. And so the, the management it takes to do that is just uh, really incredible. Thus the site-specific uh, farming stuff that I did when I first got here. So it sounds like there's just a lot of variability, even, you know, between you're at the Dakotas, the I-States. You didn't mention Idaho, though. Uh, I didn't. We'll, we'll I, I don't past. know a whole lot about <laughs> Idaho, so I tend not to talk about things I don't know about. Uh, always a smart move. Yeah, I know they grow a lot of potatoes there and amazing potatoes, but that's about all I, you know, the, some of those sediments are volcanic. And uh, in about three sentences, I've told you everything I know about Idaho agriculture. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So what, what do you think are the biggest benefits? I mean, it sounds like we have a lot to explore yet in soil health, but the benefits a lot of people are showcasing the benefits, but from your perspective, your perspective, what can people expect to see as benefits when they switch to no-till? So, um, the, some people get in because uh, it saves money on fuel. You know, the fuel price has been up and down and all around, but uh, you certainly save trips across the field. It used to be a lot easier to get into no-till than it is right now. Right now, we're kind of in a transition phase. I hope it's a transition, and I hope it's not a dead end. But I, what I'm afraid of, um, I have a, I have a, cert, I'm a certified crop crop advisor, uh, just like another 400 of my colleagues here in North Dakota, and and so I have to know something about weed control and integrated pest management. As, as well as soil fertility and nutrient management as well and crop production. So 30, 25, 30 years ago or something like that, uh, the industry uh, went to Roundup, Roundup kind of crops, you know, the sugar beets in the area, uh, the corn, the soybeans, all Roundup. Uh, wheat never did, thank God, because they'd lose their market and they have enough trouble keeping it as it is. But uh, but those three crops, uh, that's that's what they used, and and it was incredible. It killed everything. I mean, it just killed everything. It was a you, know, you used Roundup, and it was just like a miracle. Before that, you struggled. You always had weeds coming through, and after that, you didn't see anything. But gradually, after about the last fifteen years or so, you started to see weeds re develop resistance, and in first one weed, then another, and then you know we have some really horrible. Uh, very competitive weeds out there right now, which laugh at Roundup uh, as it's gone over. And so where it used to be, uh, where a no-till person would just put on what they called a burn down before planting, it would always have Roundup in it, maybe a couple other things in it. And and it would, um, and there's, so there'd be no weeds at planting time. You'd plant the crop, you'd spray it with Roundup once, and then you're done. Well, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you, you maybe spray it with Roundup and you kill the grass, but there's there's water hemp, there's there's uh, kochia, uh, and other emerging uh, weeds that uh, that are, are a big problem. So so it's a lot harder. You can't just pull the easy button. Uh, so it takes a lot more management, and and so the 
So the, I guess the, the message is that when you change something in the system, you have to change everything in the system. And people we've worked with in their transition, I mean, they're serious about it. Okay, so I'll tell you why they're serious about it here. So, gosh, it's been, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. I always knew soil conservation was, was kind of important. And the person that came before me, uh, his name was Carl Fanning, and he's still alive. He's in his 90s. I, very frail the last time I ever saw him, and I hope he's doing okay. But um, a wonderful man, um, and he didn't do a lot of research, but he he was uh, the soil specialist here uh, during the 80s, which are very dry, and especially the drought years of 88 to 90, extremely dry, really, really dry. And and there was this dirt blown everywhere. I mean, you were people were using their township equipment to clear off roads and stuff like that. It was just awful. And uh, and so he lived with that. And so his main message was, how in the world can you can you get so you can stop that? And so, but when I came, it started getting wet all through the 90s. It was very very wet. And so I concentrated more on the soil fertility side. But then. I got a call from the Governor's Historical Society in Bismarck, and they wanted me to, to give a presentation at their annual meeting on the history of fertilizer use in North Dakota. And I heard the word governor, and I said yes. So uh, it's not the governor that's running for president right now. This is just a couple governors before that. But anyway, it didn't matter. So so I hung up the phone. I thought, what the what did I just do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold up a chart. It's gonna show three lines of NPK, you know, the, and and I'm gonna talk about that for 45 minutes. Am I an idiot? What did I do? <laughs> so I thought about it for a long time, and then I had heard stories about buffalo bones, about settlers picking up buffalo bones and selling them someplace, you know, for something. So I started to investigate that, and I was really, I was amazed that there really was quite the deal. It started in the Central Plains, millions of, I don't know, millions of tons, is that right? I think so, um, of buffalo bones gathered across the prairie. Okay, some of them was natural. If you think about it, it makes sense. So it's true that the natives used all the pieces of the buffalo. But they didn't use all the pieces of all the buffalo. I mean, how many scapulas could could a family use? You know, seriously, how how many could they use? You know, you get one, you know, use it to spade up something, you know, but you don't have a hundred of them sitting around the teepee. So so there are bones everywhere. And, and some of them for the natural, and some of them were from the great slaughter. Uh, but I read I, I read some archive letters from people that that homesteaded uh, in parts of North Dakota, and they would talk about uh, there were bones everywhere, and they just had to pick them up in order to plow, because they, they'd run the plow, they'd hit something. It'd be a bone, they'd have to pick it up, you know? So, mm -hmm. so they'd sell them for like 20 bucks a ton sometimes, as much as $20 a ton, and, and that's big money back then, and a lot of these people that settled up here didn't have any money. So anyway, so I so I figured that uh, all the bones that they picked up and shipped out it equaled about maybe two years of phosphate application at today's present rates. So I thought, well, okay, that'll be 15 minutes. And then I thought about the dust blowing, and I thought, well, I wonder really how bad was it? 
And the more I read, the more appalled I got. So some of the soils, well, not some, all the soils in this part of the state were two and a half, three feet thick, really black, seven, seven and a half percent organic matter when they were turned over. And now there's six percent of maybe four and a half to five percent. It's all gone. There were there were some there's some fields west of Fargo that used to have two and a half feet of, of six plus percent organic matter back in 1900. You can look at the old soil surveys and they're all there. Uh, but now, you know, they have a little dark layer that's maybe two and a half percent. That's about it. You know, six inches is just all gone. I've seen buried, wow. buried, buried topsoil horizons in some fields. I work with the 4-H and the FFA land judging contest every year. And a couple of years ago, uh, we we had a had a site northwest of Grand Forks, uh, and and saw this uh, nice thick black layer about two feet underneath the ground on the north side of this ridge, uh, and I had it tested, and it was what 5.9 percent. That was that was a that was the original topsoil, maybe back in the 30s, and it had lost some before then. It was 18 inches thick, 5.9 percent. It was a 5.9 percent organic matter topsoil within 100 miles of that place. And there it was. And I, we found one on at Dickinson this year when we were doing our contest. So the no-till movement here in the in the state didn't come from extension. It didn't come from the USDA ARS Research Service. It came from farmers out, out in the very western part of the state and other places in Alberta, Saskatchewan. There are people that decided they had to do something because if they didn't, their kids weren't going to be able to farm. And, and they were right. If they hadn't, their kids wouldn't be able to farm. So that's where it started. And then after a while, after after Extension and USDA decided that these people weren't going to go broke, uh, they started research, researching it themselves. But the, the farmers really kind of broke the ice. They figured out you couldn't do monoculture. You couldn't do wheat, wheat, wheat. You couldn't do wheat fallow. You, you go broke doing that, but because you're saving moisture by not beating the soil to death and losing all that moisture in the spring or the fall, you can grow a crop every year and still be way profitable than you would have been with the wheat fallow that you used before. And then, so diversity of cropping systems, uh, the elimination of fallow, all that came from farmers. So I listen to farmers a lot. So. It seems like diversity is, it, it's been in farming for a, a very, very long time. And it's, it's kind of wild to think about the points that you just mentioned that soil, I mean, it used to be two to three feet at 6% and now it's at 6%. And is that in North Dakota or is that in that general region? Yeah, just the general region. Yeah, the, the the entire region. Oh, the the soil loss in Minnesota only 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 went about maybe a hundred miles east of here, uh, and then they must have got some rain uh, during the during the 30s and beyond. I'm sure they've lost some to water more than they have to to wind, uh, but there are some six six percent soils out in in Minnesota. The far the farther east you get, but not in the western part of the state, not where the wind blew. Um, so the link there with soil fertility is that during during the Dust Bowl days, uh, the eastern cities of the United States uh, had uh, significant layers of, of of dirt 
blow on to him. And I, and I think it was New York City. I've got the paper, but but some scientists came out maybe into Central Park and they took took samples of the soil that had landed on it after a particularly horrible Great Plains event, and they tested it. And the the phosphate was what, forty times the concentration it was left on the prairie. Uh, potassium was way higher than it was in the prepare in a prairie. The organic matter, nitrogen. So when you when you lose the, the topsoil, you lose the fertilizer too. You know we've lost well over two hundred years of phosphate from our soil loss um, in terms of today's present rates of phosphate that are used in the field. We've lost that much fertilizer over over the past hundred and forty years. So that's a uh, that's a lot of money. It's probably yeah. probably worth three times what the land is worth. Yeah, at least. Dave, what are you excited about in the future? Oh, let me see. So, um, I'm I'm excited that 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 people are are starting to get it in areas that aren't no-till right now. Uh, the Red River Valley is kind of the holdout for for the no-till. That, that's where the adage that no-till equals no farm, you know, you used to hear that quite a little bit. But due to the, some really hard work, um, I call I call the presentation. I have a presentation on my website on on uh, the history of phosphate export from North Dakota, which is kind of weird because we don't have a mine here. But uh, so it's a it's a voiceover presentation. I've given that versions of that presentation quite a little bit, but I've never had such a visceral response to it from farmers. You know, I get big hairy guys coming up wanting to give me a hug afterward, you know, with tears in their eyes saying, I really, you know, I always thought this was important, but nobody really put words to it before. Uh, and then I, I, I get people that say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe this is important after all. Cause a lot of the farmers, um, at least until recently, really thought that if they had a dust storm, the stuff that was in the ditch was the only stuff that blew. And that's not true. You know, there's probably 50 times that that, or more that went off the field into God knows where, you know, thousands of feet up in the air and circled the earth. I gave a, a little short presentation in Rome one time where there were a lot of people that were interested in potassium. And there was somebody from the Imperial Valley out in California, and they're protected by mountains. You know, they had no idea what wind erosion is and came up to me afterward. And he said, I always wondered what the dust was that, that fell on our farm. <laughs> always wondered where that came from. You know, in his case, maybe it came from China because they had problems too. But uh, So so that's, uh, but we've had, uh, we've had people that have, that have been, uh, working with farmers and trying to develop relationships and and working in counties uh, that have challenging crops. Sugar beets are really pretty high value. And, you know, when you take them out of the ground, I think you've seen sugar beets up there in Idaho. They have a few up there. But when yeah. you get done with the field, it looks like you've plowed it. You know, really not, but it kind of looks like it. potatoes are the worst. So if you put all the soil through the through the through the machine at harvest time, not just some of it, but sugar beets, you're pulling it up, dirt's flying around. Um, but you can you can do a strip till in sugar beets, and, and uh, people have been doing it up there for now two, three years or so, and it's kind of catching on. So 
I think there's hope. There's more cover crop. There's more leaving uh, small grain uh, residue and letting the volunteers come up and not uh, every time you see something green running out there with a chisel plow and then launching a blow all over the place. So there's there's more awareness and there's more change. And so that's, that's exciting. And then the other thing is just the change uh, in the movement toward site-specific nutrient application. Uh, the zone approach um, probably takes care of about 50% of the variability. I think the next step will be when people start to use the active sensors, even on a, uh, from a drone or from the ground-based unit, something something like that compared with a with a nitrogen-sufficient standard so that they can actually do some in-season point work because there's a lot of variability even after you zone. Zones. So, I, so I think that's the... The next step is getting people interested in that, and I haven't been very successful. I haven't been successful at all getting people to do that. But but the data's all there, the algorithms all there. All they got to do is take a deep breath and do it. So it's uh it's set to go. Dave, where can people find those presentations that you were just mentioning earlier? Yeah. So. Um, if they just Google Dave Franzen at ESU, and then look at my homepage, and then and then uh, just call that up, I think uh, they always redesign uh, just because they get bored and they have to do something. But they redesign the web page every once in a while. But I'm pretty sure it's kind of on the bottom of that. And then all of my extension publications, all of my scientific publications are are all on those pages. So we have a nitrogen calculator for corn and for string wheat and for two-row malting barley and for sunflowers. And so that's, that's attached on the right-hand side of my webpage. We have a calculator for potassium based on the clay chemistry. And, and, and I'll just add this because you probably have maybe viewers from all over the place. Is that all soil fertility is local. And I'd be the last one to start to recommend to Idaho farmers what they should do or Illinois farmers what they should do. The responsibility of extension people in that state to develop those kind of research programs, but I um, have a pretty firm firm uh, belief that that what we what we developed here in, in North Dakota works for the here in the region. That sounds great. Thank you for giving us a walkthrough on where to find those, um, and definitely a good call out on. You are a specialist in your area, specifically North North Dakota, and yeah, just for folks to obviously get a hold of the local experts because um, those guys know the soil better than anyone. So, Dave, last last thing, what's one thing that you would like to leave us with today as we think about our show, Farmers Capital Conversations? We aim to expand, you know, the human, intellectual, and economic capital for farmers so that they can be better farmers. And investors, how how can they become better farmers using the period using no till from your perspective? So it's it, it's important to, to 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 realize that if you don't put any fertilizer out in the field, you're probably not going to get zero yield. You're going to get some yield, and and so recognizing that the soil itself is providing some of the nutrition that those crops need is, is really important. Um, you don't, you don't, all the organisms that person needs in order to make as much nitrogen as, as is possible with the kind of soil you have 
is already in the field already. What, what a person needs to do is need to nurture that and leave it alone as much as possible so that the good things in the soil can keep keep growing in. And so eventually the farmer can can start shaving their fertilizer rates just like those farmers that I talked to uh, here 30 years ago did. Uh, so it's a real thing. It really happens, and, and there's a biological basis for it. And so just recognize that. You don't have to buy an organism out of the jug in order to make that happen. You just have to change your management to nurture what's in the soil already. Nurture what's there already. I love yep. it. It's all there. Dave, thank you so much for coming on, giving us insights into your work. Um, I'm certainly appreciative of everything you've done in the advocacy of no-till farming. And yeah, just thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Casey. Absolutely. Tall listeners, hope you found some good golden nuggets in there. Feel free to reach out to Dave. I think he would be more than happy to have a conversation with you. Perhaps I am mistaken, though. Dave, am I wrong? No, that's, that's this, um, like I told you before, this is a big, small town. Anybody can contact anybody. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds great. All right, everyone. Well, feel free to do what you do and have a great day and look forward to another episode next week. All right. See ya.